0: On the 15th of August, 2021, we witnessed the return of the Taliban to Kabul. After 20 years of conflict, the mass evacuations and the sheer panic in the streets was evidence of the people who were fearing for their lives. Throughout this period, World Travel Protection supported our clients who required an evacuation, and when evacuations were no longer possible, we assisted with their shelter-in-place plans. Part of that was receiving on the ground, updated and reliable information from people like Jill Knetzky who Frank Harrison is going to talk to in today's episode. Jill quickly became part of a series of networks providing updates and ensuring an objective real-world perspective. In turn, Jill received a more comprehensive range of information that helped her decide when was the right time for her to leave. Frank was directly communicating with Jill and receiving and passing information and following her journey as Jill went from wanting to remain to choosing to evacuate herself and her assistant. Join Frank and Jill today as we look at Jill's journey, how she and why she went to Afghanistan and how she made a difference and her subsequent evacuation. But Thank you for listening and enjoy our special episode of Navigate.
1: Hello, my name is Frank Harrison. I'm the Regional Security Director of North America for World Travel Protection. Welcome to Navigate, our podcast on lessons learned and about travel awareness and safety. Joining me today is Jill Suzanne Kornetsky. She has an amazing story of how she was in Afghanistan and how she left. What's even more interesting is how Jill ended up in Afghanistan. Hello Jill and welcome to Navigate.
2: Hi Frank, thanks for having me.
1: So what brought you to Afghanistan?
2: Right, so I spent about seven years, uh, just under seven years in Afghanistan. I had had colleagues in graduate school who were from Afghanistan. I was getting masters in sustainable international development and coexistence and conflict So there's a few places on Earth where development and conflict really interact with each other, and Afghanistan is one of them. I also had some personal ties to the region. I was adopted as a baby, and I know my birth father was Persian. So I've always had a sort of fascination with the region and read a lot of travel books about uh, these mysterious and dusty places that few people travel. So when I was in graduate school around 2010, it was sort of the peak of the Afghan war. It was the peak of activity there. There were a lot of news stories. It was pretty clear that there was a huge need for help, for assistance on the development side, uh, despite the conflict, that it was going to be a difficult job and that it needed good people to come and do that job and role model and be an ally. So I took a position with USAID for six months doing monitoring and evaluation. And after that, I stuck around to try to figure out how I could best make an impact
1: there. So you went with USAID, you set up a residence in Kabul, you stayed on. So what was the next part of your journey like living in Afghanistan? Just what was your day-to-day like and what did years turn into?
2: It's it's definitely a strange place to live, an interesting place to live. Everybody goes and kind of thinks they know, think they, thinks they get it, thinks they understand Afghanistan. And it takes about six months or a year to realize how thoroughly you do not get it. And how many of these quirks about culture and the artificial culture that was contracting, how those all interacted on the ground. So for me, I was mostly independent. I had apartments in different parts of the city. I tried working for different implementing partners. I worked for Azizi Bank. I worked for, at one point, the Anti-Corruption Commission. And throughout all of those things, I sort of discovered how much corruption there was, how few of the efforts were actually successful or sustainable or even really sincere. So I sort of started developing my own approach to how to help and how to approach programming differently, more localized, more more sustainable, more self-sustaining. So I've been pursuing that and I'm intending to go back and pursue that in the near future.
1: So you were living in Kabul, you had a life, you were actively involved in community, you had your trusted networks when did it become apparent that the taliban offensive was actually taking momentum and what was the perception on the ground and where did the two intersect
2: yeah so early in august there was a more there was an increased cadence of the falling of districts and provinces there's it was very common for districts to fall and be recaptured and you know the 10 police officers would be overrun by 50 talibs and the 50 talibs would be overrun by 150 army And then we'd repeat the cycle uh, every few months or every six months. Starting around maybe the 10th or 11th, they started falling in succession and not being recaptured. And that was a trend, that was indicative of a larger problem. Then Herat fell, um, which had not really happened before and only weeks previous, they had fought off a huge offensive in Herat and were very proud of the ANDSF for their, their forcing the Taliban back out. Herat fell, some of the northern districts fell in provinces, and then Mazar fell. And that was a big deal. Uh, Mazar was always the stronghold of the resistance, and the warlords had always managed to keep it. That's where the early resistance fighters in 2001 fought back the Taliban and basically crushed them. So for Mazar to fall and for the warlords not to stay and fight for it was a turning point in the conflict.
1: So that's the warning, Mazar Sharif falls, now Kabul is the target, because effectively Jalalabad fell about the same time as Mazar Sharif. So you're in Kabul, what what are you seeing? What is happening around you? What are you noticing?
2: Leading up to the 15th, there was a lot of news stories, there was a lot of social media. I started calling it disaster porn, because it was so worst case scenario, so apocalyptic, so they're coming for all of you and killing all of you. And it caused sort of a, an increase in the panic. There was always a concern. You know, the Taliban was always a concern. Security is always a concern. But the, the tone of social media and the tone of the news became quite desperate and quite, you know, disproportionately so. But desperate and uncertainty led to speculations about what they were going to do. And those became concrete. And this is definitely happening um, so up until the 15th, it was just a lot of crosstalk and a lot of static and a lot of nobody really had the true story. Was that district fought for or was it handed over? We were starting only just starting to hear the rumors, which turned out to be true that many of the provincial leaders had been bribed in advance so that when the Taliban showed up at their door, they wouldn't fight and they would just hand over the district or the province. So then around the 15th, they came. And the 15th in the morning, we had heard rumors that Connie had signed a secret deal, a secret agreement with them in the palace in which he would resign and they would take Kabul uh, bloodlessly. It would be no fighting, that there would be a stand-down order for the troops and police. And that was rumored in the morning and proven true, you know, by the evening. Around maybe three o'clock in the afternoon, we got word from multiple messages that they're here, they're in the city, they're coming. Uh, There was a huge rush of cars and pedestrians in towards the center of town, which is also towards the airport. People definitely were scared. And anybody who hadn't already started heading to the airport started heading to the airport. And, um, you know, it was my assistant told me to go as well. And I said, anytime 10,000 people go in one direction, you don't go in that direction. Uh, Good things don't happen along that line.
1: So you're an American. You were there in an expat position. You had... Your organization, you had a lot of local nationals that were part of your circles. You had a local Afghan who was your deputy. What happened then? Like, this is now at the cusp where things are really starting to change. And in my space, we had a you had become part of a trusted network that I was involved in. And you were providing some real honest on the ground intelligence back out to us. But for you personally, what happened next?
2: For me personally, my concerns were more about my assistant. Um, He had, in the days preceding the fall, been threatened at his farm, which is on the outskirts of Kabul. The night of the takeover, late at night after the hubbub had died down, his brother was assassinated in the road outside of their home. And we weren't entirely sure why, if that was because he was ANDSF, if that was because they were affiliated with me, because he had been threatened for working with, quote, the Americans. The the person reporting on him didn't realize that I'm an independent entity, I'm not government, I'm not aid, I'm not any of those things, but that was enough for them. So my concern turned to my assistant. Uh, We first started sort of sanitizing the house, getting anything in English, uh, shredding it or burning it or throwing it out, getting any liquor bottles out of the house, getting any materials that people would find, or that the Taliban would find offensive, out packing up books just uh, getting rid of a whole DVD collection. Anything that could have potentially upset the Taliban, we started sanitizing the house. And then we sort of, we sat and wait. We, we listened to our networks. We were talking to everybody. At the time, I had a roommate who was an Afghan expat. And the day after Kabul fell, she was traveling to and from her family's homes and my uh, office. And she was doing it in proper Islamic hijab, but she was doing it without being bothered. So even on the first day after the fall, it was clear that the 1998 Taliban wasn't what we were dealing with. And that's not to say their ideology has changed because it hasn't. But the way they approach things and the way they operate for various reasons was quite different. Women were coming and going during the day without problems. And not with their faces covered, but with proper hijab. Um, Men were coming and going right up until curfew and even after curfew that was being implemented. So mostly we just made preparations, kept in touch with our networks, and waited and watched. You know, I was fortunate that our office is up quite a few stories on a main road, so we were able to see quite a distance in every direction. And so we were able to observe the Taliban doing patrols at night, and how are they behaving, how are they treating people on the road in general. So that was the next two days of our, our week. Okay,
1: and if I recall, that was about the time that you had made an announcement in one of our networks that You were going to stay and prepare to go out on a commercial aircraft when the civilian airport reopened. At what point did you realize that wasn't going to be an option and what happened then?
2: Yeah, I had scheduled flights out later in August and into September. It became clear as those kept getting cancelled and pushed out and cancelled and pushed out that the predicted reopening of the airport was going to take longer than we thought. And we thought it was possible they were gonna run the military side of the airport and also the commercial side of the airport. And the way it worked out when the US forces came to uh, hold the airport and run the airport, that wasn't gonna happen. The commercial side was closed, commercial side had been overrun and um, maybe was not operable as it should be. So it was all going to be military flights at least until the 31st. I had heard from some of my contacts in the U.S. government that they were definitely trying to get the airport open and that it was possible we were going to extend beyond the 31st into September, which didn't turn out to be the case. So around the 19th or 20th, I started to step up my efforts to find alternative pathways out. I was content to wait until it was clear that the airport was not going to open for some time. So I started contacting state department, some contacts I have at state and USAID and uh, the DOD and just people along the way who mostly LinkedIn friends who knew I was in country alone and wanted to offer just some information or some connections or call this person, try this number. Um, And that's when we started exploring alternatives to the airport. Uh, The airport was already a mess. It was the kind of mess that Daesh loves to blow up. They love a soft target. They love a high body count. Um, Starting... 16th, 17th, we knew the airport was going to get hit by Daesh. So going there for me was not an option. Also because I knew they would separate me from my assistant and he wouldn't get out, which was the whole point. By around the 23rd, I believe, 22nd, 23rd, the U.S. forces had started doing some limited convoys through the area. They were very hush-hush at the time. We thought that that would keep going and I tried to get on those lists But after a day or two, they were called off as being too risky or not exactly sure the logic. Uh, So I was contacted by the American Coordination Cell, which is not a thing, (laughs) it's not a thing that exists. So um, based on the choice of words and the questions I was asked, it was clear that those fellows were either special forces or intelligence. So I was able to work with them to first try to get on a convoy. And when that wasn't possible, to uh, meet them at an alternative location outside of the airport where we could be helicoptered into the airport from. That location turned out to be Eagle Base, a former CIA uh, black site and also known as the Brick Factory or the Saltworks. They had us come in there on our own steam. You had to find your own transport. Uh, my neighbor's cook drove us in his uh, Civic and uh, drove us out past Um, Policharki Prison, past the whole industrial area out to Desabs, which is where like the gas tanks are. And um, we were taken into a very heavily fortified base there. And uh, mostly Afghans trickled in throughout the day until we had a couple of hundred. And then after dark, we were helicoptered over to the airport.
1: So you arrive at the airport and then were you put right onto a service aircraft out or how did that transpire?
2: No, we were not. So there was, the airport was some sort of organized chaos. There was holding areas um, sort of fenced off or caged off holding areas for groups of passengers. There was a constant stream of military aircraft coming and going. We saw Netherlands, U.S., uh, Australia, Britain, just military cargo planes coming and going in a constant stream. Um, We were funneled through one section of the airport to give our documentation and be manifested on a flight and then walked through a different part of the airport to have that confirmed. At that point, they wanted to separate me from my assistant because the citizens and the non-citizens were being treated a bit differently, going to different locations. Uh, I refused. I stayed with my assistant. We were eventually manifested on a flight and then taken to a holding area for, I don't know, four to six hours, just sitting, you know, 20 meters from the concrete, uh, from the tarmac, watching planes take off until it was our turn. Um, Around... I don't know, two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning, we were um, led over a single file to a military transport. We were loaded in a C-17, uh, all sitting on the floor together. Uh, they closed the tailgate and took off. And we didn't know at that point if we were going to Dubai or Qatar. We found out after we landed that we were in Qatar. And um, from there, we were taken through the processing system through the wedding tents. And then um, once I was sure that my assistant was on a list and would not be left behind, I was separated and taken to the citizens area.
1: Obviously the tempo changed then. What was the next steps and how did you leave?
2: Once we got to the civilian area, it was all very orderly. It was obviously far less people. Most of the people were at the wedding tents area where my assistant was. We hung out uh, from sunset until maybe midnight. There was an issue with the train, uh, the bus, there was something wrong with the bus that was supposed to take us to the plane and there was something wrong with the plane. So what was supposed to be two days of half plane loads turned into one night of a full plane load. They weren't sure when we could take off. They got us a couple of cots and chairs and blankets and told us to make ourselves comfortable. Around 3.34 in the morning, they woke us up and put us on a uh, United commercial jetliner.
1: And where did you go to from there?
2: We went to a base in Germany to just to switch the crews, because the the flight time is too long for a single crew. Uh, We had a turnover there. We went to Dulles from Germany, and then uh, in Dulles started a long process of um, being taken through separate customs and border patrol lines, uh, because not everybody who had gone on those planes had been completely vetted. So they wanted to um, take us to a separate area than other passengers, and just very slowly take us through one by one check paperwork, make sure they knew what was happening. I was on a plane, of course, with people who were American citizens, legal permanent residents, people with green cards. So it was a different process for my assistants, but we were processed through as quickly as you can process four arriving planes at the same time. And um, from there, we had the option of staying in a Marriott paid for by the National Public Health Service. I declined and went to a different hop hotel, and then from there I went home.
1: And where did your assistant end up?
2: My assistant had a much, much longer journey. My assistant was in Qatar for about a week, roughly a week. We had entered his P2 paperwork pretty late in the process, so I knew it would take him time to be processed. Um, one of the Marines was kind enough to give me a SIM card. He went to the base PX for me and got me a SIM card so I could keep in touch with uh, state and people, making sure that my assistant was on lists. Uh, I handed that over to my assistant when I left and I gave him some cash and um, he was in the tent city for about a week. From there, he transferred to Rammstein. They took biometrics once he was on a certain list of of a manifest. They took biometrics in Qatar before they left and then they went to Rammstein. Uh, He was in Rammstein for approximately two months. Uh, It was a long haul uh, in challenging circumstances. They didn't have showers up when they first arrived. They were just getting the internet running. You know, a lot of men had to shave their beards and their hair because of sanitation problems, which was, I think, traumatic for them. Uh, After about two months, he was transferred to Camp Bonsteel in Kosovo because the Rammstein intra-agency contract had expired for housing people. He was there for almost another month. And then he's just recently been uh, flown to America. So now he's on a base in the States. He is waiting placement, which is going to take another couple of months, most likely. But he's safe. The conditions in the base in America are very friendly and kind. There's, there's food. There's people making barbecues and welcoming meals. They're distributing clothing. And there's a much bigger area for them to be able to walk around. They can go to the store now. They weren't allowed to go to the store before. So it's a very long process, and it's not finished yet. But he's on the road to at least safety, and we'll see where we go from there.
1: What an incredible story! Uh, You went to Afghanistan as a graduate with your graduate degrees to do good. You ended up becoming part of the community. You you were effectively part of the Kabul fabric, and then you had to escape as an American. If you look back on what has occurred over in the period just before you evacuated, is there any advice or three points that you could give? To just any travelers so that when they're traveling, how to be prepared, because we're not going to have an Afghanistan every day, but travelers do find themselves in harm's way on a regular basis.
2: Yeah, sure. So I would say a big thing is to be as self-sufficient as possible. Um, I think for somebody who's traveling quickly from place to place, it's a little bit different from somebody who's staying in a place for a little while. But especially if you're staying in a place for a little while, be prepared to shelter in place. You know, you should have more than two days of food and bottled water in the house. You should have enough propane to heat that water. You should have backup batteries. What if the power gets cut? What if you can't get in touch? What if your internet fails? Do you have enough top-up cards? Do you have uh, enough backup batteries to keep that phone working? The second is to probably stay in touch with the relevant agencies and the STEP program and the embassies, but don't count on them. I've been in several different countries where smaller less consequential things happened. And I discovered that I couldn't rely on the embassies the way you see in the movies. You know, they're not, as much as there was a military presence in this evacuation, that is extremely rare. And the the movie notion that the embassy is gonna roll out a squad of Marines to come and get you because you're having a bad day is a fantasy and people need to get over it because it's never gonna happen. Even in Kabul, when people were at specific risk, they only ran convoys like one or two nights, that was it. Because it was too risky and it was too complicated and they just couldn't. So I'd say, yeah. And for a third, I'd say build up your local networks. As much as people, powerful or influential people on the outside can get in touch with people or can make things happen, the local people on the ground, uh, and not even the elites, not even the political class, just your average neighbors, the people that you hang out with, they have more local knowledge than anybody ever gives them credit for. They know the difference between a good guy and a bad guy on site. They know their habits. They know what is safe and what's not safe. They know, you know, when a rumor is just BS and when not to pay attention to it. Those are the people who can sort of help you vet your information and know whether you're making smart decisions based on the context.
1: That's really good advice. So be prepared, travel with confidence, be risk-aware, adapt, and leverage support. Jill, this has been an amazing conversation on our Navigator podcast. I really appreciate your time. Your story is amazing. And I hope others can enjoy it and learn from your experience. And I look forward to following your journeys as uh, you prepare for your next adventure.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Frank. I really appreciate it being
0: here. You've been listening to the World Travel Protection Navigate podcast. If you'd like to learn more about World Travel Protection, please visit our website at worldtravelprotection.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And again, thank you for listening.